Um, that was fun, but there are some people who go to some extremes in all of this. I have a friend who in uh, late 1999 sold all of his uh, possessions and bought a compound in Utah or Idaho or one of those other states that got a lot of vowels in it percentage-wise and uh, because he was afraid that, uh, you know, the whole Y2K thing, you know. I haven't talked to him recently because I don't think he has a telephone or anything at this point. But um, there are people who, you know, really at times go overboard in some of this. And then others who it's just, you know, as Charlie's saying, it's kind of fun, you know, science fiction, you know, for, for some people. And, and some people take it very, very seriously. Uh, I don't know how many of you have read the Left Behind books. I won't ask you to raise your hand because you'll be embarrassed to put your hand up. But there are... Uh, 16, there we go. We got some folks here. Have you read all 16? No. no, no. no. Seen all three movies. Okay. There are 16 books, 16 novels. It's a whole series of novels that was, uh, that was written in the 90s uh, talking about the book of Revelation and what's going to happen. And it's the author's kind of vision for what they think is going to happen. 95 million copies of these books were sold. Six of them hit the number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And, uh, you know, so this is something that a lot of people love to talk about and, and want to know what's going on and what's going to happen in the future. And I realize it's about noon. You guys are tired and hungry. So to put it in two words in case you get tired and, and decide to fall asleep in the next 15 or 20 minutes or so, two words to kind of summarize what's going to happen in the future according to the Bible. God wins. Okay? That's it. There's the bottom line. The end of history, God wins. And when he wins, everything is great for us. Okay? Uh, the, the Bible tells us, and, and there's all sorts of debate among Christians as to the details, the end time, this thing that they're talking about called the rapture, etc. But if you cut through all of the details and you ask yourself, how's it going to end? Jesus is going to come back, take those who are followers of him to be with him forever, God's going to win. He's going to set everything right. Justice and mercy and truth are going to prevail. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, and everything is going to be incredible. And we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. But before we get there, I want to address an issue that a lot of people have. And that's really the question, you know, is heaven going to be boring? You know, is it going to be interesting? What's it going to be like? And I, I found this quote this week by an L.A. Times columnist named Joel Stein. Some of you uh, may read his column from time to time. And in 2007, Stein lobbied the Starbucks company. I don't know how long it took him to do this, but he finally convinced them to put one of his quotes on the side of their, their cups. It must have been a venti because it's a pretty long quote. But anyway, so on the side of a Starbucks cup, here's Joel Stein's thoughts on the future. He says, heaven is totally overrated. It seems boring. Clouds, listening to people play the harp. It should be somewhere you can't wait to go, like a luxury hotel. Maybe blue skies and soft music were enough to keep people in line in the 17th century, but heaven has to step it up a bit. They're basically getting by because they only have to be better than hell. And there you go. Hey, look, if it's Philadelphia or heaven, I'll take heaven, you know. Or as W.C. puts, W.C. Fields puts it on his gravestone, he says, all things considered, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. I mean, is this, is heaven only a good place to go because it's better than the alternative of, of hell? Or is there something better than that? Is there a greater reason why we ought to want to go to heaven? C.S. Lewis, 
who was an Oxford uh, professor uh, uh, of the 20th century, incredible literary critic, novelist who wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia stories, uh, English, you know, just knows English literature, unbelievably one of the smartest guys of the 20th century. His response to Joel Stein, actually written about 50 years before Joel Stein wrote his little Starbucks thing there, he says, there's no need to be worried by facetious people who try to make the Christian hope of heaven ridiculous by saying that they don't want to spend eternity playing harps. The answer to such people is that if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they shouldn't be talking about them, you know? I love that, you know? If they can't understand books written by grown-ups or for grown-ups, they shouldn't be talking about them. <clears throat> and that's what we're talking about here. If you take just a surfacey kind of view, which most of us have, myself included, heaven seems like it's going to be a boring place. You know, and there have, I'm, I'll be honest with you, there have been times when I've said, you know, when things are going pretty well here on earth, why would I want to go to heaven? Okay, the alternative is worse, but if I'm just going to be sitting on a cloud, eating cotton candy, listening to, you know, somebody play the harp, even if they play it really well, is that going to be interesting or not? You know, and, and I, I wouldn't get my theology from a Starbucks coffee cup, but that quote was on that cup because I think it touched... Uh, the heart of many people as they think about heaven. So is that what it's like or is there something more to it? Is there a reason why it's a place that we'd want to go? A couple weeks, actually last week, uh, Memorial Day weekend, I got to go, not to heaven, but next best thing on earth, uh, Princeton, uh, to, to, to go down there for some of you, okay, there's got to be someone from Yale here, you know, it's going to do that. Um, got to go down there uh, for Princeton's reunions. And if you've never been down to Princeton during the reunions time, you got to go just once for a few hours just to see what it's like. Imagine literally 30,000 people all dressed in the gaudiest orange and black costumes you can ever imagine and drinking Budweiser beer for a whole weekend. And it's Budweiser because the Anheuser-Busch people are Princeton graduates and that sort of thing. It's actually Budweiser beer's biggest event of the year since the Indianapolis 500 went dry. It's a little piece of trivia you can take away from church this morning. So I went down to reunions, not because of the Budweiser beer or actually not even because of the orange and black. Uh, I don't look in good in orange and black. It's not really my colors. But... Um, I went down and got to hang out with some of my friends. And I love doing that because it's just a, a great time to catch up with folks that I went to college with, find out what's going on in their lives and just, you know, talk and, and be with one another. It's really just a, an outstanding time. And I got to spend time with, with one of my favorite people who graduated a, a few years after I did. Uh, his name is John. He went to Princeton, graduated with a degree in history. He has two master's degrees, one from uh, the premier seminary, one of the premier seminaries uh, in the United States, and the other actually in philosophy uh, from Cambridge in England. And uh, unbelievably brilliant guy. I literally have to have a dictionary with me if I'm going to understand what he's saying. He is so smart in the vocabulary that he has. When he was at Princeton, he was a walk-on on the soccer team, and he's just an out—you know—he was an outstanding soccer player. Uh, he lives now in New Haven at that other university called Yale up there, where he's in a think tank there. And it's okay; I can I can handle that. I, I really, I can. Um, and he's a, just a brilliant guy. Uh, since they live in New Haven, uh, the school system is not great. Uh, they don't make a lot of money, so. 
they decided to start their own school rather than sending their kids to a private school that they couldn't, couldn't afford. And so John is the headmaster of a private school in addition to all that he, else that he does. He teaches Latin and all these different subjects at this uh, private school where they're sending their kids. And so I just love catching up with him and finding out what's going on in his life. And he was telling me about a situation with his wife, who they've been married for uh, about 20 years now. And ever since uh, they've been married, she has had one health problem after another. And they have been to doctors all over the country, uh, literally all over the world, trying to get this diagnosed. And finally, about six months ago, she was diagnosed as having celiac disease. Uh, which if a number of you are familiar with that, it means that your body can't process gluten. And I was talking to someone after the service, and they were filling me a little bit more on some of the details of it because they've got celiac disease, and I'm sure there are several others here who have it. And my understanding is that if it's caught early, it's not a big deal. It's a pain because you've got to watch what you eat, and you know, that means no wheat and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's treatable. You can, you can live with that. Her problem is that she's had it for about 20 years now, and the lining of her small intestine is, is essentially destroyed, which means not only can her body not process, process gluten, it can't process calcium. And so she's, what, 43, 44 years old, and she has osteoporosis. Um, and she was, she was telling her husband how she went to a uh, yard sale the other day, and the only guys that were hitting on her were like 75 years old, because that's what she looks like, you know? And she's a 40-year-old in a 70-year-old body because of this. And he was just sharing with me the struggle of how do I help and encourage and love my wife and encourage her in the midst of her, of her difficult situation. And then we got talking about him because I knew that he had had uh, neck surgery a couple of years ago. He had a, it wasn't just a slip disc. I think it was just totally out of place, pressing on his spinal cord, so much so that he needed uh, pretty much emergency surgery and might have died without the surgery. And even with it, there was, it was kind of touch and go uh, for a little while. And he was, you know, so he was talking about that and all that he went through with that, the, the constant pain that he's in now. This guy who used to be this runner, soccer player, incredible energy, etc., is just you know, living in constant pain. He can walk, but he can't run, can't play soccer, can't you know, wrestle with his kids and, and all that sort of stuff. And it's just a, a discouraging kind of a situation. And, and I'm, I'm sitting there listening to him and we're talking for a while. And I'm thinking, you know, beyond saying, John, I'll pray for you, you know, beyond giving him a hug and, and listening to him, what can I do? You know, what kind of hope can I give him? And he's been to seminary. He knows all the truth and, and he knows as well or better than I do, about the comfort that his relationship with Christ brings him now. And Rich was talking about that a little bit, uh, a little bit this past week, and he knows about praying and about reading his Bible and all this. And that does bring him comfort. But I said to him, so John, how are you really doing? You know, deep down inside, how are you really doing? And he looked at me and he said, you know, I can't wait for the renewed earth. I can't wait for the day when all this is going to pass away, when God is going to come down and make everything new, and then I'm going to be able to run again, and I'm going to be able to play soccer with my girls, and my wife is going to be able to eat all sorts of foods and just enjoy the beauty of a renewed earth. 
that she and I and our kids and all of us uh, who are followers of Christ are going to get to live on. And we're going to be with Jesus and we're going to see him face to face, the one who loves us more than anybody else loves us. And so really, he gave me, in a sense, the response. And I, I was just so encouraged by, by his faith and the fact that he, as a follower of Christ, has a faith that he has a God who loves him, who is with him and comforts him and, and meets his needs now, but is ultimately going to cure the whole thing and clean it all up and fix all the brokenness in eternity. And that was just, a, just a, a, an encouragement to me as I got to spend that time hearing him say that. And so what I want to do this morning is take a look at two passages in the book of Revelation that talk about this new heaven, this new earth that's coming in the future, just to give you a little bit of a glimpse of what my friend John was talking about. First one is in Revelation chapter 21, and this is written by uh, the Apostle John, who actually wrote several books in the New Testament, including one of the biographies of Jesus, the Gospel of John. Revelation chapter 21, John starts off and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Let me just stop there. Most of us think of, when we think of eternity with God, we think of we're going to go, if we're a follower of Christ, we're going to go to heaven to be with Jesus. And that's fine, and that's, that's accurate as far as it goes. But it's interesting, if you read the details in the Bible, it actually looks like we're going to be on a new earth. Not just in heaven. Maybe there's going to be some access between heaven and earth. But we're going to be on a renewed earth. Not just sitting up in some cloud somewhere, you know, eating cotton candy and listening to someone playing a harp. But there's going to be stuff going on on the earth. You know, maybe it's playing soccer with our kids or or whatever it may be. And at first, you know, that sounds kind of maybe sacrilegious or whatever. But you realize when God created the earth in the first place, he put us in this incredible, beautiful place. And what's he doing throughout history? He's bringing us back to the place we were originally, where it's a place of beauty on, on a new or a renewed earth. So we, we get to spend eternity with Jesus on this renewed earth. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, John writes, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. One of the challenges when you're reading things like the book of Revelation is it uses figurative language that's really hard to get, our, to get our arms around, to get our minds around. And you read some of the stuff in other parts, and it talks about these locusts with tails that sting and you know, all this stuff that's going on. You're like, what in the world is going on? Think of it this way when you're thinking about the figurative language. Imagine that you are someone who's grown up say, on a uh, remote island in the South Pacific, and you have never seen modern technology. And the first time an airplane flies overhead, how are you going to describe the thing? There was this giant bird, and its wings didn't flap. And there was a noise coming out of it, like the roaring of a lion. And there were holes on the side of the giant bird. And I saw faces of what looked like people looking out from the side of this, you know. I mean, how would you describe an airplane if you'd never seen it before? That's what's going on in 
the book of Revelation and other places, you've got someone like John who's never seen these things, neither have we, and he's trying to describe them using imagery and language that he has, but he's describing something that he just has no real categories for. So when he talks about this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven dressed as a bride, it's not like the city has a veil on it and there's this you know, white train coming off of it. He's using language that describes the most beautiful thing that he's ever encountered, a bride who is dressed for her husband, who's coming down that aisle, and every head turns to look at the most beautiful woman in the room. And that's what it's like, John is saying, when he sees this city coming down. It's so beautiful, he doesn't have words to describe the beauty of this new Jerusalem that's coming down. The new earth is going to have beauty that's going to capture our attention and our imagination for days and weeks and months and years. I mean, think of the most beautiful place you've ever been to. Hawaii, you know, the Swiss Alps, I don't know. And just multiply that infinitely. You realize it's not going to be tarnished by pollution or by the garbage that human beings leave around or whatever. It's it's going to be an incredible place. And John is trying to describe this for us. And he's saying, this is unbelievable. This is so awesome. Verse 3, he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place, this is the New Jerusalem, is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. God himself will be with us and he'll be our God. He's going to live with us. He's not off in heaven some way far, far away. We're going to get to be with him. Imagine being with the person whom you love the most. Imagine whether it's your husband or your wife or best friend or you know whatever it may be where you could just spend days and days and days hanging out in their presence. Perfect relationship, nothing separating the two of you. And then again, multiply that infinitely. We have a God who loves us, not because we have done great things, but who loves us in spite of all that we've done, who forgives us, who wants nothing more than to pour out his love and his grace and his compassion on us, and who wants to be with us and who wants us to know him. And John is saying, this is what we get forever when we get to be with Jesus. That's what Sophia was singing about. And then in verse 4, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. You know, no more celiac disease, no more fused spine that isn't perfectly taken care of. All of that is gone. All the health problems are gone. And what caught my eye, and I've read this, you know, dozens of times I've read this passage, but what caught my eye probably for the first time now is God is the one who's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. God is intimately involved in showing his compassion. It's like he's taking a Kleenex and he's dabbing away those tears and he's gathering us in, our, in his arms and comforting us. You know, that's the kind of God that we have and that's the kind of person we're going to get to be with for eternity. Just jump in real quickly then to chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. We're going to have good food. 
you know? I, I have friends on uh, Facebook who love to take pictures of the different restaurants that they go to and the little dish that they have there, you know, and you, you see that and you say, man, that looks awesome. That stuff's going to look like McDonald's compared to what we're going to get to have in heaven, you know? There's going to be great food there. This tree, a different kind of fruit on this tree every month. And that's the tree that was in the Garden of Eden. That's the tree that when Adam and Eve chose to trust themselves rather than God, God said, okay, no more. You don't have access to that tree of life anymore. But on the renewed earth, we do have access to that tree of life. We get to eat it and it enables us to live forever and it tastes great and it's just awesome what God has provided for us in that way. Verse three, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. The curse from Genesis chapter three, all the problems that we have, wiped out, reversed, gone, taken care of. Interesting, verse 4, we're going to serve him. Sounds like we may actually have jobs in heaven. You say, I knew it. I knew there was a problem. I knew that there was a catch here. You know, it's not all perfect. Actually, a lot of us have jobs that we enjoy. Some, you know, we we look forward to to Friday because, you know, Saturday's coming. But many people enjoy their jobs. Imagine a job that gives you incredible fulfillment because it's designed specifically for how God has made you. And I don't know what that will look like for you, but I guarantee that whatever God has us doing in heaven, it's something that we're going to enjoy. And it's not going to be toilsome. It's going to be refreshing and invigorating and exciting for us. And we get to see God face to face, not from a distance, not just reading a book about him, but actually seeing him face to face. Verse five, there'll be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. No more night. Does that mean we're not going to get tired? You know, we're not going to need to sleep. No more fatigue, no more wearing out. You remember when you were a kid and you didn't want to go to sleep because there was so much excitement for the day? That's what it's going to be like in heaven, except you're not going to get tired and mom's not going to say you got to take a nap, you know? It's going to be great. And we're going to reign with him. I don't know exactly what that means, but he's going to give us some authority to reign in some way, and it's going to be pretty awesome in that way. So is it going to be a boring place, kind of like Joel Stein had on the side of, uh, of that Starbucks cup, or is it going to be something exciting? You know, I think it's going to be incredibly exciting. Natural beauty far beyond anything we could imagine. The arts, I mean, the Renaissance band is great. They're going to be even better you know, in heaven. Maybe I'll be able to sing, you know, and that'll sound great. You know, we'll get to, I don't know, we're going to get to play sports. I mean, there are sports in the Bible, if you're familiar with this, you know. Genesis 1, they played baseball in the beginning. You know, they played baseball there. They played tennis when Joseph served in Pharaoh's court. You're supposed to be laughing at this point. They rode motorcycles when David's triumph was heard throughout the land. And there won't be corny jokes either. I don't know all the details but we're not going to be just sitting on a cloud listening to a harp over and over and over again. It's going to be like the best of this world, perfected to an infinite degree. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. And at the center of it all is going to be the one who loves us more than anyone else loves us, more than we could ever imagine, more than we could ever hope for, our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. And that's what gave my friend John hope, you know, in the midst of all of the difficulties because he knows that the trials he's going through now are just fleeting, momentary, compared to the incredible eternity that he gets to spend on the new earth with the God who loves him and who's going to heal him and heal his wife. And he's looking forward to that. Our hope for the future is set against a backdrop of the brokenness of this world. And that brokenness increases our longing for the next world. And the beauty and the perfection of that world give us hope as we continue to live in this one. Sophia sang in her song, all will fade away, but we'll get to see Jesus face to face. And that's what we're talking about. That's what happens in the future. As I mentioned, the author of the book of Revelation also wrote a biography of Jesus. The apostle John was Jesus' best friend. And if you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, yeah, that sounds pretty good, but I, I don't know, being with Jesus, that sounds okay, I, but I'm not so sure about that. Let me encourage you, pick up a copy of the Bible and read that biography of Jesus that John wrote, the Gospel of John, fourth book in the New Testament. There's uh, just enough chapters that if you read one chapter every day between now and the end of the month, you'll be able to finish the Gospel of John by the end of the month. You've got this guy who knew Jesus better than anyone else, and he's telling us, what's he like? You know? And I think it'll give you a picture of him, and I think when you're finished with it, you're going to say, you know what? I think it'd be great to spend eternity with him. Let me encourage you to do that. I want to ask uh, the band to come on up now, and uh, Daniel's going to sing just this incredible song for us that talks about the hope that we have as followers of Christ. Our faith is rooted in the past. It's rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But our faith lives in the present, here today, dealing with the realities of life in the 21st century and Summit or Short Hills or Chatham or Madison or wherever you live. Our faith lives today, but it hopes in the future and in the fact that Jesus is going to return and take us who are followers of Christ to be with him in a place that is so incredible we have difficulty describing it. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this glimpse of heaven, of the new earth and what it's going to be like. Father, just... I pray that you would increase our longing for you and for your son and for the place that you've prepared for us. Give us a deeper and richer understanding of the kind of love that you have. And as we have the hope that we get to spend eternity with you, we pray that we'd find strength to live our lives here and now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.